Good morning, everybody. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, uh, today we start a new uh, series of sermons, a seven-part series of sermons on marriage. And I, for one, am really not looking forward to it. Let's perhaps start by acknowledging uh, one thing. This may be awkward. Uh, talking about marriage here at St. Barnabas and now in 2018 may be awkward for many, uh, perhaps actually for most, possibly even for all of us, for any number of personal reasons. I'm aware of that, especially as I'm planning to talk about a number of sensitive and difficult topics. The one thing I won't be talking about, uh, just so you know, the one thing that I won't be talking about, an issue I don't wish to provoke discussion about, is uh, the same-sex marriage uh, issue. Uh, there was plenty of conversation about that last year. And we have all, I believe, had plenty of time and opportunity to prayerfully establish our own convictions on that matter. And I respect the fact that here at St. Barnabas, I'm in fellowship with Christians whose convictions on that particular topic are very different to mine. I cannot help, of course, saying things that touch on that topic incidentally, but I'll not engage with that topic specifically. Even so, there'll be plenty of other issues. Masculine headship, divorce and remarriage, sexuality and sexual sin courtship and dating, plenty of other issues to get us into trouble. <laughs> that may provoke feelings of anxiety or anger. We'll need grace for this series. However, I'm sure that God will give us grace. Why are we doing this at all? Well, uh, one reason is that marriage, family, society what it means to represent and follow God, all of these things are actually intimately connected. So it doesn't matter if you're 19 or 90. It doesn't matter if you're single or married, divorced, widowed, whatever. A robust understanding of marriage is needed in order for us to understand who we are, what we're doing here, and what, God, what purposes God has for us as a species. A second reason why we're doing this series is that for a while now, perhaps for 6 to 12 months, I have been um, under the heavy conviction, just really basically just really believing that Jesus is saying to me, I, I want you to do this series. There are things that you need to talk about as a church. Um, so... Um, so then, if at any time you don't like what I'm saying, uh, don't panic. Uh, we'll work together on living together as we endeavor to interpret Scripture responsibly and in community. So um, here we go then. Uh, marriage enters the story of the Bible very early. You may like to turn with me in your pew Bibles to Genesis Chapter 2, page 2. Um, we're going to be looking at that in some detail. Genesis chapter 1, as you probably know, is a creation story. Genesis chapter 2 is a second creation story, quite different to the first 
in both form and content. It serves as a commentary on the first story, fleshing out the details, offering different insights. We met God and humanity for the first time in chapter 1. God is the creator of all. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth, the seas, the land, and all that is in them. Human beings, both male and female, are created in his image and likeness. They are created, therefore, to be his representatives, to represent him, being like him, and working for him and with him in the ordering of his creation, having dominion over the other creatures of the skies, the seas, the lands, and also filling the earth. Suddenly, in Genesis 2, the perspective changes. For the first time in the Bible, God is referred to as the Lord God. And where we see that word Lord all in capital letters, it's a stand-in word. It's um, standing in for what is, in Hebrew, God's personal name. Uh, In Hebrew, it's just four letters, and we no longer know how it was pronounced. Traditionally, it's pronounced Jehovah. Uh, But perhaps more accurately, the correct pronunciation is Yahweh or Yahweh. We don't know, actually, but it's God's personal name. Respectfully, kind of uh, written over as Lord as as a traditional aspect of respect. But God's personal name, wherever it appears, signals to us that suddenly the, the priorities in the text are changing and suddenly the priority is relationships. Because we know that in that passage, this is the personal God, the God who can be known, the God who wants to be known, uh, the, the, the God who is to be known personally using his personal name. This is the creator of the universe, chapter 1. But someone who works so as to be personally known by the human creatures he makes, that they are made above all to know him. And that is the change of the perspective. Genesis 1 is wide angle and big picture. Genesis 2 is close up and personal. In, in verse 7, we meet somebody else. Um, I'll read, if you'll allow me, I'm going to read from my own translation. You can follow in the Pew Bible NIV translation. I'll read my own translation just to give you a different sense of what the Hebrew is saying. Verse 7, And Yahweh God formed the Adam from the dust from the earth, and he breathed into his nose the breath of life, and the earthling became a living life, or a living soul. Um, the Hebrew word Adam, or the Adam, can, it can be properly translated as man, as it is in our pew Bibles. Where this is done, the word means human being or person, as opposed to animal. Um, rather than meaning male man, as opposed to female woman. The word Adam is probably derived from the Hebrew word aramah, the Hebrew word for ground or soil or earth. So Yahweh God made an Adam from Adamah. And for this reason, I sometimes translate the word earthling as a suitable translation. Um, We read in verse 19 that all the other creatures of the earth were likewise made out of the substance of the ground, 
But we only hear about Adam being God breathing into his nose. It would seem that only human beings are given the breath of God, the spirit of God. And we are, it seems, a crossover species. In fact, the only crossover species, the only species created by God to inhabit physical and spiritual realms simultaneously. To be on both planes of existence. In, in verse 8, we find out that Yahweh God had planted a garden in the east, in, in Eden, and there he put the Adam. We meet two very important trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But again, uh, that's another story. Verse 15, And Yahweh God took the Adam and placed him in the garden of Eden to serve it and preserve it. Now we know what dominion, that dominion that was spoken of in chapter 1, now we know what that dominion will look like. To exercise dominion is to serve and preserve, to look after, to care for. To exercise dominion, both here and through the rest of Scripture, is to be a servant. Dominion and domination, it turns out, are opposites. The Adam is to serve and preserve the garden for and with Yahweh God in his presence, in his likeness, in his image. Um, this creation, this world, this universe had been described at the conclusion to chapter, to chapter 1. It had been described as good. Six times in, in Genesis chapter 1 we read that the creation is good. And on the seventh occasion we read that it is very good. Um, this sevenfold goodness of creation. Goodness in Hebrew thought is fitness for purpose, pleasantness, fruitfulness, productivity, it being right. But suddenly, actually, in verse 18, there is a shock. And actually, it's the first of many shocks that we're going to find in this passage. For, verse 18 reads, And Yahweh God said, not good is it for the Adam to be alone. This not good is emphatic, and it's a sudden, discordant note. The positioning of the words not good is emphatic, like not happy, Jan. If you remember the ad, not good. We, we draw in our breath, the orchestra plays, dun, dun, dun. something is not good. What on earth is not good? It is not good for the Adam to be alone. The Adam hasn't spotted this for himself. God spotted it. It's God's judgment. Not, not the Adams that this is good. Not pleasant, not right, not fit for purpose, not going to be fruitful. And the Adam isn't lonely. He's not lonely. He's with Yahweh God. Yet there is a need not yet provided for by something good. And a second shock comes with God's decision based upon God's judgment. God says, I will make for him a helper like opposite him. Um, and that's a worry because this word helper, it kind of sounds pretty submissive. 
or perhaps subsidiary or derivative like like a slave. Someone who's going to be at his beck and call. Someone to make dinner and hang out the washing. So, So... we think, oh, that doesn't sound too good. But as we read further, we'll discover that the word is actually an exalted one. It appears another 19 times in the Old Testament. And on every single occasion, it refers to God himself as the helper of Israel. The word does not suggest a passive role nor a reactive role, but rather one who makes things possible. Behind every great man, There is a surprised woman. (laughs) Forgive me for that joke. Well, the phrase, like opposite him, is appropriately rendered suitable in our pew Bible. This is the sense of it. The helper will be a complementary partner, matching and suitable. Not identical, but rather different in a way that is complementary. They make each other look good and complementary. They they go together, but as difference, as opposites. Uh, They'll be different in a way that makes each other look good, like, like peas and carrots, like salt and pepper, like bread and butter, like hand and glove. Then there's a third shock. God delays and Adam has to wait. In verses 19 and 20, we get what appears to be at, at first a diversion. Suddenly we're talking about animals here. It appears at first glance that God holds a competition. Adam in search of Eve with the other animals as the contestants, like a reality TV program. And um, there's a fourth shock. The search is unsuccessful. But for the Adam, a helper like opposite him was not found. We can safely presume that God knew in advance that the search would be fruitless, but for some reason it needed to happen. The Adam needed to know to not look there. And along the way, we, we see something, along the way, we've actually seen something truly extraordinary. A, a fifth shock. It is the Adam who names the animals, not Yahweh God. The Adam is not the creator. He didn't make these things, and yet he acts like the creator, taking the creator's initiative to name them. And that was just fine with, that was just fine by Yahweh. Well, Adam needed to see, and we need to see, and the other creatures need to see, that the Adam, that is humankind, that, that, that Adam is in God's place, in authority as God's representatives exercising dominion. And Adam gives names to all the birds and the animals. Names are needed because we were created to have personal relationships with them, to know them and to be known by them. Um, those, those relationships are important as well, not just the, the helper-like opposite him relationship. Um, verse 21. And so Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh, replacing it. This is yet another shock. This is a methodology we've not been previously introduced to. Uh, The Adam and the other animals were all manufactured, literally handmade from the dust of the earth, from the ground. What we're expecting then, in the light of the need for another Adam like Adam being, what we expect is to see Yahweh God drop to the ground and begin again with the modeling clay. But he doesn't. 
He chooses a different methodology. And Adam loses a part of himself. This thing is costly to Adam. God splits the Adam and the shockwave is heard around the world. Another really bad joke. Sorry, just I have to, I have to point my jokes out now. Maybe I should retire. The, the Adam is divided. Why? Well, the Adam himself sees why. Verse 23. And the Adam said, This time it's bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. This one I call woman because from man this one was taken. The Adam bursts into song. And if he's not singing, he certainly bursts into poetry because this is what that is. It's Hebrew poetry. And the first sentence celebrates a moment of sensational recognition. Yes, this is it. This time I get it. I've kissed a lot of frogs and I've dated a few sheep, but now I see that that was never going to work. This is it. This is family. This is the right one. This fits exactly. And the Hebrew phrase, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, is a common Hebrew phrase meaning of my own family. The same as me. The English equivalent is of my own flesh and blood. Um, We belong together by the closest and most unbreakable of ties. That's the meaning of both figures of speech. Um, So the Adam, figuratively speaking, the Adam sings to his woman, We are family. I've got all my sisters with me. And he does. We belong together by the closest and most unbreakable of ties, family. Now, even though the earlier phrase, helper like opposite, has prepared us for something different, a complementary opposite, the phrase now, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, celebrates an opposite truth. The woman is just the same. This is someone just like me. Uh, We must therefore hold these two truths in tension. And it's an awkward tension. Men and women are just the same. And men and women are completely different. Both things are true. And as both things are true, we mustn't exalt one of these truths to the point where it damages the other. To forget one and to cling to only one is to misunderstand the relationship between the sexes. And these two twin truths explain many things in life, including, of course, uh, our conflicting desires in courtship. In courtship, we discover that opposites attract fiercely, and yet we also seek someone just like ourselves, a like-minded friend. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. The second sentence introduces us to two new words for the Bible. The word woman appears for the first time, and so does the word man. In Hebrew, these words are isha for woman, although it also means wife, and the word ish for man, although it also means husband. Uh, This word ish means man as distinct from woman rather than person as distinct from animal. And you actually have corresponding words in Greek, although not in English. We get confused and have to make use with the same words. But in Greek, it's andres is the word for man as opposed to woman. And anthropos, from which we get anthropology, is person as opposed to animal. Um, 
So this beautiful yet shocking tale ends with one of the most significant verses in the Bible, verse 24. Thus so, a man or husband leaves his father and mother and clings to his woman or wife, and they will be one flesh. Uh, For the ancient reader, the shock of this verse would have been very considerable. For what he or she would have been expecting was, thus so a woman leaves her father and mother and clings to her husband, and they will become one flesh. From the perspective of all the ancient cultures, the verse in the Bible gets it backwards. Um, In most traditional cultures, and certainly in the Old Testament, when a woman marries, she's expected to join her husband's family. The marriage ceremony will perhaps be little more than the man actually going to get her from her father's house and bringing her back to his father's house, accompanied by cheering friends and relatives, followed by a party when they get there. The young woman will now find herself in a a patriarchal, hierarchical, unashamed culture family where she is quite low down in the hierarchy. She will be expected to take orders from her father-in-law and mother-in-law as well as from her husband. She has joined her husband's father's household. And even though that was the near-universal ancient Near Eastern pattern, the Bible demands that it is wrong. No, it is the young man who leaves in order to make a radical break, in order to create something new, a new family, a new household, for that is what the phrase means, they will become one flesh. One flesh means one family. In, in a secondary and yet undeniable way, the phrase also means they will become one flesh. It refers to sexual intercourse, uh, the union of coitus, For that is also how the Bible occasionally uses the phrase. And uh, Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 6 uh, are an example of that. Uh, Sexual intercourse will be a physical picture of a legal truth. These two people are one flesh, one family, a new entity. And with these thoughts and uh, resonances, the passage closes with verse 25. And so it was, the two of them were naked, the Adam and his wife, and they felt no shame. They felt no shame in front of each other. Now, in, in, in the ancient world, nudity was associated with vulnerability, perhaps with poverty, certainly with humiliation. That might be a bit lost on us because actually in our film and television, nudity is usually associated with sex. That the Adam and his wife, who is yet to be named, that the Adam and his wife are naked yet without shame, without, without loss of face or, or humiliation, gives us a picture of complete vulnerability. Their vulnerability with respect to each other was complete vulnerability yet it was without risk or danger. And this sentence suggests one very, very important aim for marriage. Nudity without shame. Or to put that another way, complete vulnerability without danger. 
Or to put that another way, marriage is to provide an opportunity to experience being known and knowing fully without the threat of rejection. Or to put that another way, marriage is to provide an opportunity to experience unconditional acceptance, grace, and love. Um, One final shock comes in the form of something we expect to be mentioned but isn't. And that one thing we expect to be mentioned but isn't mentioned is children. Genesis 1 told us that we were to fill the earth and subdue it, to be fruitful and increase in number. And seeing as the way to do that is by way of sexual intercourse, we're expecting to be told, for this reason, a man and a woman will leave their father and mother in order to have children. But there's no mention of children. That Adam and his wife were one flesh, were family, before there's any mention of children. Marriage creates families, not children. Marriage creates families into which children may or may not be born. Um, My family is Joe and me. Uh, We don't have any children. If we're asked, when will you start a family? The correct answer is, well, we started a family on the 31st of August 2012. On that day, I became Joe's closest living relative and she became my closest living relative. We are family. Um, when a young man and a young woman get married, they are a freestanding legal entity, now independent of their parents, residing in community alongside their parents, not a subsidiary organization under the management of of their parents. That's incredibly important because it turns out that God's design is that society is built on families rather than on patriarchal empires that serve a patriarch through a huge household. Quite a different understanding. Um, Let's conclude by way of summary. Our passage today affirms and assumes that our most important relationship of all is with God. The Adam can live without Eve, but the Adam can't live without God. Um, I haven't said a lot about singleness, nor will I specifically in this series Singleness uh, deserves uh, its own series, certainly its own sermon at at some point. Uh, Singleness uh, is a uh, disaster in the Old Testament, but it's redeemed uh, in the New. So that in both Old Testament and New Testament, marriage is normal. Uh, But in the Old Testament, marriage is normal. Singleness is a disaster in the New Testament, Um, uh, marriage is normal, singleness is better. And uh, Jesus in his words and Paul in his writings are quite clear about that. Marriage is a good thing though. Without it, the creation is not yet, still not good without marriage. Um, This passage gives us a creation story for the creation of gender. In Genesis 1, we learn that both male and female are created in the image and likeness of God. In chapter 2, we see that gender is intended by God to represent him by way of a unified diversity. It is good to be male. 
and it is good to be female. They are, are different. Different in a way that anticipates them coming together. Biologically, this is obvious, especially in young adult human beings. Complementary and complementary. In some ways, that which is feminine and that which is masculine, are, those things are opposites. This truth cannot be lost without cost. It is also true that the two genders are essentially the same. Bone and flesh, flesh and blood. Masculine and feminine traits can be found in every human being. This is also a truth that cannot be lost without cost. And all of this is good and important because it is like God, who is, it turns out, a diverse unity. In fact, he's, he's a unified community. Um, God, is a, um, God is a unified triune community, a trinity. We worship a divine community of three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, neither confounding the persons nor dividing their substance. Three eternal persons, each one fully God, not one-third of God, yet there is only one God, not three gods. And everything that's masculine and everything that's feminine find their origin in the person of God. And the placing of the marriage story right at the beginning will help us to see that marriage is therefore of extraordinary importance, of foundational importance to what it means to be human, but also what it means to represent God. It's a part of our project to represent God to the rest of creation. And as we read scripture, we find out that God is therefore deadly serious about marriage because the purpose of marriage is to show the world what he is like. Therefore, although we've read through our passage today, we're not finished with it. Uh, we're going to find ourselves coming back again and again uh, to this passage throughout this series. Uh, next week, we'll look at the topic of masculine headship in marriage and discover, I hope, what it is, but perhaps even more importantly, what it isn't. The Lord be with you.